All right. Well, good evening. Great to see everyone as always. We will be wrapping up Leviticus 23 tonight. Uh, I don't know if everyone was here last week, but if you were, you know that we started Leviticus 23 and saw that it's all dedicated to what are called the Feasts of the Lord. I believe I made the comment that that phrase or a phrase like it appears eight times. It actually appears nine times. Don't know how I missed one of them. But nine times we see the word feast and every time of the Lord, to the Lord, some sort of connection between the feast and the Lord. And that was kind of the theme of my entire sermon, that you take feast and it means festival, it means celebration, good times that God mandated they put into their calendar. You will... Observe these dates, but I would say not even observe them. You will celebrate them, but they will always give me glory. They will always be my feast. They will be about my, not what mood you're in or not how kind of day you're having. You will acknowledge these things. You will celebrate these things for my glory. That's why last week's title and really this week's title is Mandatory Merriment. Right? You shouldn't ever feel like you have to mandatory merriment, but, you know, again, sometimes our mood gets in the way. I don't feel like celebrating today, and God says no. No, no, your focus should be on me, especially at these feasts. When you focus on me, uh, the celebrating will come natural. So there was just a a slide up there kind of summarizing what we talked about last week. Uh, We read about Sabbath, which wasn't a feast, um, but it was required at every feast. Not the day, but the concept of Sabbath rest. Then there was the Feast of Passover, where God said, you will spend a day remembering how the angel of death passed over you because you had the... The blood of the lamb shed, um, spread over your, the top of your doorpost. Then there was the, yeah, we don't need to get there yet, sir. Uh, just do the left-hand column first, okay? Just the Passover, then just the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which came right after uh, the Feast of Passover. And that was to remember how as soon as that angel of death came and killed all those Egyptians, those Israelites had to get out. They didn't even have time for their bread to leaven. They had to pick up and they had to go. And then there was the Feast of First Fruits, which kind of celebrated the beginning of the spring harvest. They would wave barley sheaves before God, just acknowledging that was the the harvest that was about to happen was all his. They knew it wasn't theirs, and uh, they were giving him all the glory. And then finally, we talked about the Feast of Weeks, which we know better as Pentecost. That came at the end of the spring harvest, where they thanked God for the harvest that had came. Now, poor Dom, he's back there trying to read my mind with my slides. The reason I have this slide here is because I'm going to refer to this as left-hand column. Got it? Left-hand column's for all of us. That's what Leviticus 23 says. Fight me. Uh, You want to say that's not in there, we've got a problem. Right-hand column's mine, though. If you want to share them, that's fine. But when I share with you the right-hand column, it's how these feasts speak to me. And I'm not saying they can't speak to you, but it's not your job to just sit here and listen to me. You understand? It's your job to listen to me talk so that you can listen to the Spirit in what he tells you. I know we don't celebrate these feasts literally, but we should be able to find celebration in them. So when I said that I found celebration in Sabbath being rest, not rest from exhaustion, but rest in the peace of knowing that God is in control, that whether you're having a good day or a bad day, a good week or a bad week, we should always be able to stop what we're doing. We should never be so busy, so stressed, that we can't stop. Lord, you don't understand. I got to do. No, you don't got to do. He did. So find peace in that rest. Find joy. Find merriment in that rest. He has to mandate it to us because so often we're go, 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 go. Every one of the feasts had Sabbath rest in it to remember that he is in control. So you can put rest up there, sir. And then there's Passover. 
which I, I don't think any of us will disagree, is talking about salvation, just like the, the shed blood of the Lamb saved the Israelites, the shed blood saves us. Do you find merriment in that? I mean, you should, but if you're not living the way God wants you to live, doesn't, Paul, doesn't David say, restore to me the joy of my salvation? Don't we get so caught up in life that we kind of forget? We know what he did, but it's not a driving force in our life. That's why we celebrate communion, so that we always take time to stop and remember, so that we can be joyful, so that we can be merry for what he did through us, through shedding his blood for us. Unleavened bread, a lot of people at attach that to sanctification. Okay, go ahead. Me, personally, I attach it to faith because they had to pick up and go. And faith is so scary by definition. Faith is so uncertain. Faith is so, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to do this anyway. It's hard to be merry when you're in the middle of faith. It's easy at the end when God did what he always does. But during, like you got to work to find merriment. And God said, no, no, you'll find merriment because A, you'll look back and see what I've already done for you. <laughs> you'll remember that I always keep my word. B, I'll give you all the faith you need. Uh, Sean said it in a community group on Thursday. God will never require anything of us that he doesn't already equip us for. So if he says that without faith it is impossible to please him, then we're all in trouble unless we have faith. But it says he gives us all a measure of faith. It's up to us to act it out. It's up to us to live in it. But we should be joyful that he has opened our eyes to have the faith that so many people, I'll say can't have, won't have, however you want to word it, we have it. That should bring us joy as we look back at those times when we had no idea what was going to happen, but well, Miss Pat's not here, but if she was going to sing, he did it again, right? That should bring us joy. First fruits. I associated that with being humble because it was the one feast where God said, give to me first. You don't get anything until you give to me. Then you can go celebrate. So many other religions, yeah, they would make sacrifices to their gods at the beginning of the season, but it's because they didn't want their god to be mad. Oh, they were hoping, please accept this so that you'll give us crops. Israel trusted God would give them crops. They were thanking him for the crops he was going to give before he ever gave them. Now, it's not joyous to be humble, unless, like David said this morning, he just, God just keeps reaffirming it here. You be humble, God will lift you up. God will exalt you. How does that not put a smile on your face? We looked at that verse, uh, James 4.10, from the message version. Um, I didn't write it down because I just want to have it in memory. Get on your knees before the master. It's the only way you can stand on your feet. What a beautiful thought. Being humble, being, again, humility he used this morning. Those should be things that, yeah, they're difficult, but they should bring us joy. We should find merriment in knowing that our God is going to lift us up. He's going to keep his promises. And then lastly, the, the weeks or the Pentecost I associated with stewardship. You don't have to. But they went from waving the barley leaves, uh, sheaves of this is what you're going to give us to actually baking the bread and saying here's what we did with what you gave us and leaving the edges of the crops to make sure that what you gave us we don't just use for ourselves. It screams stewardship to me. But please come up and tell me if you get something else out of that. That's not us arguing. That's the Spirit speaking to more than one heart. I'm sorry, it's just I'm a math teacher. I go all day teaching and thinking I did a great job and the kids all smile and nod and write things down and then they take the test and it's like I never taught them anything. Don't just write this stuff down. If this is how it speaks to you, amen. The left-hand column, yeah, that's for all of us. But I'm excited that God gives us the right-hand column. And, and your right-hand column can be different than mine and it can be the same because they're still going to give God 
the glory. So we're going to add three more things to the left-hand column, which means I'm going to add three more things to the right-hand column. But please, don't just, wow, John really got a lot out of this. No, I'll share what I got, and then amen if you can turn around and share with me what you got. That would be wonderful. But let's pray and give this time to him. Lord, you know my heart. I, I'm not doubting anyone here. I know they're here to learn. I know they're here to grow. But uh, I also know how easy it is to just listen to someone talk and listen to, to what that person has to say. Lord, I thank you for David this morning. I thank you for what you laid on his heart. But Lord, you, you, you speak to each of our hearts. You, you have a message for each of us to hear. And, and they're all consistent, but uh, you, you know my heart. Lord, I just pray for everyone in here. We don't spend much time in Leviticus. We don't know much about the feasts. And by the end of tonight, we still won't know much about the feasts. But I pray we'll know enough that we'll understand why you had them celebrated in the first place. Why you didn't just want them to observe some historical event. But you wanted it to be a feast. You wanted it to be something that brought them joy. You wanted them to stop. We know the Israelites went through periods that, that weren't very joyous and they often brought it on themselves, but oh, these were always chances for them to just stop, reflect on you, glorify you, praise you, and, and find the merriment that, that a loving God wants his children to have. So again, I know what you've laid on my heart, but I know you are a powerful God and you can easily speak to each one of us, Lord, as we read your word and get out of it what it is that you have for each of us to get where we all are in each stage of our life. So I just thank you for being sovereign. I thank you for being in control. You made sure, uh, to me, a stranger named David was here this morning. Uh, you, you put that in place uh, decades ago, and, and, and he shared a beautiful message from Luke. And now, Lord, as I just try to make a little more progress here in your book of Leviticus, we thank you for it. We thank you for its power. We thank you for your spirit that translates everything for us. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to do with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to stand in honor of reading God's word. We are going to take on the second half of Leviticus 23, which actually starts in verse 23 and goes through verse 44. Here we go. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbath, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feasts of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever through your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, I sure hope that sounds familiar because those last eight verses are the verses we started with last week because I felt that they very beautifully summarized the theme of the entire chapter. Obviously now we'll get into them a little bit more as we take on this second half of the chapter. Um, but I did kind of give you all homework at the end of last sermon. You probably don't remember it. But I said, maybe you could see why I chose to break this sermon up, because originally I was just going to do them all at once. God only spends a couple verses on each one. That's what I was going to do. And I decided, no, let's make it two weeks, and let's chop it right at verse 22. And some of you are doing some mental math and saying, well, of course, there's 44 verses. Cut them in half. No. No, that had nothing to do with it. These three feasts that we just read about here are kind of all lumped together as opposed to the ones that we read. The ones that we read were spring feasts. Passover is when we celebrate Easter, so kind of at the beginning of spring, all the way up to the, um, the weeks, the Pentecost, at the end of spring. And then months go by before the next one. You might not have noticed, but every single one of these, they said, in the seventh month, in the seventh month. In the seventh month, they're, they're grouped together pretty much about two weeks apart. And this seventh month is considered the most holy month of the Jewish calendar. So that's why I said, you know, if we're going to break this into two weeks, this seems to be a good place to break it. Let's look at the three feasts here, look at them, kind of how they tie together, and then kind of lump them all together as we finish. So when we look at verse 23, the first feast, after a few months off, um, and again, they weren't off. They were doing their burnt sacrifices, of course. But as far as national festivals went, as far as feasts went, it's been a while. Verse 23 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So guess what they call this feast? The Feast of Trumpets. Guess why? Because they blow trumpets. What else do they do? I don't want to mock it too much. They do offer food offerings, and Numbers 10 actually lists all the offerings. But as far as this, these few verses go, it's no, they blow trumpets and they don't work. That's it. 
You blow trumpets and you don't do any ordinary work. You stay focused on me. All right, you're devoting a day just to blowing trumpets? Well, kind of, yeah. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because when you hear people, unless you're a Chicago fan, right? The, the, the band, right? I don't know. I, like, I always think when I think of Chicago, I think of how they'd always blow their trumpets, right? That's not this, right? When you think of people blowing trumpets, like an announcement's going to be made. We're, we're trying to get attention. We're trying to draw everyone together, yes? I just pulled a couple verses here. Exodus 19, 16, right before Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Big announcement. Moses was finally coming down the mountain with the law from God. In the book of Joel, judgments being cast on Judah for being disobedient. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Blowing a trumpet to get everyone's attention. We're not going to turn there, but Revelation. Any trumpets in Revelation, sir? Yeah. yeah. There's seven of them that all make some, right before something's about to happen, yes? And then, of course... 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I know you probably didn't need those verses, but the Bible uses trumpets over and over and over in the same way to announce something, to, 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 to get people's attention. Agreed? And the interesting thing is, as I was thinking of it, I thought, you know, sometimes the trumpet's at the beginning, right? Almost like a call to order, okay, everybody, let's go. And sometimes the trumpet's at the end. Almost like, okay, here's the climax, here, here's the, the, the big ending. In a way, this is both. In a way, it is the ending, because this is all happening at the end of the summer harvest. We're going to learn that later. So after this festival, there's really nothing until Passover comes around again. So, so not, not this one, after, the, uh, you know, after this set of them in the seventh month. So there is a bit of a sense of finality to it. But some of you know this. There's also a sense of beginning to this because the Feast of Trumpets today is... Oh, wonderful. Rosh Hashanah. And what is Rosh Hashanah? The Jewish New Year. I'd mentioned last, year, last week that they kind of have two calendars. They have the agricultural one, which was kind of wrapping up here because you don't grow things in the fall and the winter. But then they had their civil one, and this trumpets was kind of, I mean, it was on the first day of the seventh month. They were celebrating the way we would toot our horns with our little hats on on New Year's Day. So it was kind of a, an ending and a beginning. But neither one of those are really why those trumpets were being blown. They weren't being blown because the agricultural year was ending or the civil year was beginning. They were blowing it because of what's coming next. The festival that's coming up is worthy of getting everyone's attention, especially as it's been a few months since they've done anything as a nation. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, I don't think it's very difficult to say that the Feast of Trumpets, it's talking about focus, right? Getting yourself focused. Uh, verses that speak to me when it comes to focus, you're not going to be surprised when you hear Habakkuk 2.1. I'm sorry, my mind always goes straight there. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I know it doesn't mention a trumpet. This isn't about a trumpet. This is about our reaction. 
And Habakkuk is there, I'm ready. I'm on the tallest tower. When God has something to say, I'm going to hear it. That's the attitude that these Jews were supposed to have when that trumpet was blown. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There are so many verses that tell us to focus just because there's no actual trumpet getting sounded before it doesn't mean that God does not put a high emphasis on focus. Now, this should be interesting. And how many of us find merriment in focusing? Not in today's world. I'm telling you, if I got to hear one more reason why my students can't focus, one more ADHD, one more 504, one more problem at home, one more addicted to the social media. I'm not mocking those things. I'm t- it's just the world we live in. We all have our reasons why it's so hard to focus. I don't know if any of us enjoy focusing, depending what you're focusing on. Agreed? Isn't that so interesting? Oh, I have such a hard time focusing, except when it's the series finale of my favorite show on Netflix, and then I'm, like, mesmerized. (laughs) Oh, really? Hey, Len, you ready? It's so hard to focus, except for when my football team might actually get a first down. I mean, we stink. I get it. But be honest. Or the first time you get the note from that special someone who actually says that she feels, or he feels the same way about you... All of a sudden, it becomes so easy to focus. So can we just throw all these excuses out the window? It's not that we can't focus. It's that we can't focus on things we don't want to focus on. That's what we're missing. Those trumpets should have been a sound of joy because what's coming next, trust me, it's big. It's the biggest day of their entire year. And that should have excited them, and that should have brought joy into them. But you don't just kind of... You know, for months, do your own thing and then hear the trumpets and, oh, yeah, oh, great, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. It's on us to make sure that we stay focused, but that we also find joy in that focus. Hey, Darlene, you probably didn't know the Bible has a bunch of promises from God. Did you know that? Yeah, it, it does. In fact, it has warnings, too. It has blessings. I mean, it has so many things. That to be honest, anyone outside could read, and it's, the Bible says it's nonsense to them. I don't blame them for not focusing on it. They don't get it. But we supposedly do. So this feast of trumpets, again, i got to get away from the actual trumpet, because no, God has never got my attention with an actual trumpet, but you better believe he calls me to focus. He calls me to pay attention, and not just to be willing to do it, and not just to struggle to do it, but to want to do it. Again, God just drops these things in my lap, and my son was telling me the other day about purposeful prayer. And how he's really just found that so helpful to say, you know something, I'm not even sure I have anything to pray about right now, but that's okay. I'm going to pray. And then he realizes that God starts putting things in his mind. And he starts thinking about things that he wasn't thinking about. And you understand? Like, we have to look forward. I make it sound easy. I know it's not easy. But that's our fault. That's not God's fault. Focus should be something that we want to do. Even when we struggle with it, do we at least want to? Do we at least get joy in it? Or is it... Oh, geez, didn't do my devotions today. Fine, I think I could squeeze it in. No, well, I think I prayed right before I had lunch today. I mean, come on. Come on, let's give him the focus he deserves, and let's get the mandatory merriment out of it that we should get, that we serve a God who's worth focusing on. 
who gives us promises and warnings and blessings that why wouldn't we want to focus on? And I have to leave it there because I'm going to walk out of here and still have trouble focusing on it. I know. Just come alongside me in my struggle. Because the more we purposely focus, I promise, the things of earth, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's not just a beautiful hymn. It's words to live by. So that's it. That's all I have for the trumpets. The trumpets are to announce something's coming. Come on, guys, focus. What's coming? Well, let's look in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. Did you hear it? Day of Atonement. Sound the least bit familiar? You realize David actually mentioned it this morning? You might not, because you're not as sensitive to it as I am since I was about to preach it, but he did. He mentioned Day of Atonement this morning. He mentioned how it's, it's Yom Kippur. Okay? He mentioned how it is the most holy day of the entire Jewish year. And if you don't know why, I'm hoping it's because you weren't here when we did Leviticus 16, because we did an entire chapter of Leviticus 16, which told us what the Day of Atonement was. So tell me if this sounds the least bit familiar. It is the one day of the year where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, not in his priestly garb, but in common servant's clothing. I'm not going to remember all the details, but I know he's going to sprinkle blood on the altar. I know there's going to be two goats. Is it starting to sound familiar? One that would be sacrificed for the people's sins, and one where the priest would symbolically put the sins on that goat and let him go off to show that those sins were forgiven and forgotten. That's the Day of Atonement. That's the day that they would look forward to every year to wipe the slate clean. The day where every sin, whether they realize they sinned or not, just, just God forgave all of it, and God removed all of it. It was, it was a huge day for the people. But chapter 16 pretty much just focused on the priest. There's only a couple verses that talked about the people themselves um, I'm going to read them to you, verse six, uh, chapter 16, verses 29 to 31. As far as the nation went, God said, It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, we just read something like that in chapter 23, just a little more extreme. Verse 29, God said, For whoever, this is chapter 23 now, for whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Sound merry? 
All right, John, let's see how you pull this one off. You're telling me they're supposed to celebrate this? Um, actually, no. I have a confession to make. For the last two weeks, I have somewhat been purposely misleading all of you. And I have known it for the last two weeks, but the lawyer in me waited till the very last second because if I told you in the beginning, it would have sounded like it was blowing up my entire thesis of what this chapter is about. Okay, It doesn't, by the way. But I have to admit to you that from the beginning, I have told you that feasts are festivals, they are celebrations, they are times of joy and blessing for the Lord. And that's what feast means in English. In Hebrew, there's actually two different words that both get translated feast. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm wondering if the translators just thought it would be easier that way. But one of them is the word shag, C-H-A-G. And that is a festival gathering, a feast, a pilgrim feast. See, I wasn't lying. Except that's only four of the nine times the word feast shows up. That's when it's referring specifically to the Feast of Unleavened Bread or specifically to the Feast of Booths. Shag shows up. But when the feasts are referred to in general, just these are my appointed feasts, the other five times, it's the word moed, which just means an appointed time a place, or a meeting. So I'll be honest. Five of the nine times, the word celebration, or even the concept of merriment, is not explicitly stated. In Shag it is. In Moed it isn't. So yes, I stand before you admitting that not every feast was explicitly commanded. I told you that. Only the last one was. That's why we read it last week. Not everyone was explicitly stated, you better celebrate this. But oh my goodness, I spent the last week and a half trying to convince you that every single one of them was worthy of celebration. If you want to argue with me that focusing on your salvation is not worthy of, of celebration, you let me know. That thanking God for your faith is not worthy of, of celebration. For being humble, being a good steward, I, until God shows me otherwise, I will go to the grave saying that every one of these are worthy of celebration. But it is true that they're not all referred to as celebrating moments. And the Day of Atonement wasn't primarily a celebrating moment. I get that. They were to afflict themselves, which means they were to restrict themselves. They were to fast. They were to pray. They were to just everything was about God that day. They were to focus on their sin and the fact that they needed atonement. Those aren't merry thoughts. I get it. But they should lead to merry thoughts. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a celebration service for Marge Shiro. Now, of course, I have to be careful here because I don't even want to sound flippant. But you know we're not celebrating that someone died. I mean, come on. There's a family that's hurting right now. There's a void that needs to be filled now. This church lost a wonderful person. We're not ce Her celebration service, I promise you right now, the elders aren't bringing those little party things. For as happy as we are that she's in heaven, oh my goodness, she must be loving it right now. Celebration isn't the primary driving force of her memorial service, but you better believe it is rooted in celebration. And I believe Day of Atonement should be also, because even though they have to spend their entire day fasting and restricting and, and praying and, and focusing on the fact that they're a sinner and that they're not worthy, guess where it always ends? 
with the goat taking their sin out, with their sin being forgiven. For us, with a focus on Christ, of course, it always ends up leading us back to a joyous thought. So for me, the bigger question isn't so much as Day of Atonement meant to have merriment, at least somewhere involved. It's how was I going to categorize it? I didn't want to say repentance, even though that's such a good point. I hope we're all old enough here to know that there is joy in repentance. Like, you get it as an older person, but especially as a younger one, when you're lying to your parents, and you finally admit you lied, and yeah, you get in trouble, and yeah, there's consequences, but it just feels so good to know it's behind you, yes? When you know you were doing something wrong, or you weren't doing something right, and finally you just admit it, you know something, okay, I'm sorry. There is a joy inherent there. If I said repentance here, I wouldn't be wrong, but I'd be wrong. Because the Day of Atonement wasn't really about repentance. Do you remember why? The Day of Atonement was supposed to cover all those sins that they didn't know they committed, or they forgot that they committed, or they didn't even realize were sins. They had offered up burnt offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings for all the things that they knew that they did, that they wanted forgiveness from. This really, to me, was more, Lord, no matter how hard I try, I'm still a sinner. Can you please, can we just start this new year on a new page? To me, that's a desire to grow as a person. That's a desire to become more conformed. Jews wouldn't have said to the image of his son, but we would. Yes, that would be. Does any word pop into mind? And yes, I'm killing two birds with one stone here. Sanctification. I didn't feel so comfortable attaching that to unleavened bread, but I feel very comfortable attaching it here. Oh my goodness, when I think what those Israelites were supposed to be going through on that Day of Atonement, it really wasn't, and I do this wrong and I do this wrong, it was, you know, something, even if I offered sacrifices all year, I wouldn't cover every sin, because I'm not perfect. But, oh Lord, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want you to be happy with me. I want to start fresh. Thank you so much for taking it out. It reminds me of what David says in Psalm 19, 12, and 13, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. We've heard those verses before. But what David's pretty much saying is, Lord, even the ones I don't know, show me. Help me not for the ones that I so respectable sins, the ones that so easily beset me. Oh, help me. Help me forgive those. I'm sorry. I don't even realize I'm doing them, but I don't want to do them because I don't want to upset you. To me, that's not repentance as much as that's a desire for sanctification. It's what the young adults were talking about yesterday, I believe. They were talking about how they're growing in knowledge in their group and, you know, pastor and all the. But sometimes it's, it's a little frustrating watching yourself grow in knowledge and feeling like, yeah, but I'm not applying it all. It doesn't work that way. You don't learn something and then automatically apply it. But are you striving to? Are you letting God take that? That's why I did that whole left hand, right hand thing. I wasn't going to do it, but then, you know, you guys aren't here to, all right, sounds like John's growing in the word. Check. Good job, John. Check in with you next week. I'm sharing with you how God spoke to my heart. But if you don't, oh, John, what you got's good enough. No, let him speak to your heart. What are you getting out of it? Are you desiring to grow 
in sanctification. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Oh my goodness, I have butchered this passage over the course of my teaching time. I used to think that this was talking about unsaved people and saved people. I thought it was evangelical. I thought it was a cry out to the people who hadn't accepted God that you are dishonorable, but if you just accept Jesus as your Savior, you'll become honorable and useful for him. That's not what this is saying. The verse, that, when it says, i got to go back. Now in a great house, he's referring to the body. He's referring to the church. And once I realized that, I'm like, oh, then I guess God's admitting there's some bad people in the church and some good people in the church. No. I didn't understand what dishonorable meant. To me, dishonorable meant bad. All dishonorable meant was not worthy of honor. That's it. Uh, the example that I so often hear and read in commentaries is cooking utensils, you know, utensils, plates, forks. There's plates, forks that you put out all the time unless company's coming over. And then you go get the good plates and forks. It doesn't make the bad ones garbage. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be using them. It just means they're dishonorable. You, you don't view them as the ones that you want to use when you really want to send a message. This says that it's on us to strive to grow in sanctification. Because yes, God can do anything with anything. We can be ordinary utensils. I say sometimes I think God works in spite of us. But for those special moments, and please don't think that means preaching opportunities or 20 people getting saved. God says, give a cup of cold water in my name. I'm going to reward you for it. God decides what the special moment is. But God is looking, humanly speaking, for those of us who want to grow in sanctification. Not just those of us who are willing to, but those of us who want to. So that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. I have trusted you with little, now I will trust you with much. That's why there has to be merriment. I know sanctification is not easy. It's tough. That's why so many people don't bother trying to grow. So many people treat salvation like it's the finish line instead of the starting line. But we should want to grow in our faith. We should want to grow in our sanctification. We should be excited. Again, I'm speaking humanly. I know God's sovereign. I know he's outside of time. But humanly, that God's just there saying, hey, John, you know something? You're really growing. You know something? Go, go talk to him. You know something? I'm going to give you a chance to preach on this. He's sovereign. I'm not. But that excites me. That makes me merry. That makes me happy to know that on the day of atonement, when really, oh, man, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a... Isn't that what David preached this morning? Like, I didn't even mean for that to line up. Instead of me being pharisaical, man, I'm pretty awesome. God can use me anytime he wants. Lord, I know I'm nothing. But as I know I'm nothing, which is called humility, humble yourself, God will say, Psh, what are you talking about? You're my kid. Let's go. I want to do this through you. I want to do this in you. I want to, there are the goosebumps. I don't mean it. I don't know. It just happens. That's so awesome. That the day of atonement, that should be the worst day of the year. Oh, that day that reminds me I'm never going to be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. But you know something? God says, I'll make you good enough. Just let me use you. Uh, just to quickly look at what Paul says in Philippians 3. I just love it. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I made sure that would be the last slide. Because, oh my goodness, if you read that wrong, it almost sounds like Paul saying, I don't care what it takes, I'm going to suffer as much as I can because I really hope I go to heaven. That's not what that's saying. He's not talking about making it in. He's talking about that abundant entrance that Peter talks about. That he wants to say, he wants to grow in sanctification so much. He wants to, all those Hebrew of Hebrews, all those things. I don't want those things. I want the things that are going to help me grow in my faith. The things that are going to help me grow in sanctification. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to count everything as rubbish. That's someone who's not just willing to grow in sanctification. He wants to. He's somebody who I promise had a smile on his face when he got to the end and said, I have fought the good fight. I have run my race. And now awaits for me. And, and the one that awaits for all of us. So I'm going to leave it there. Again, I can only tell you how these things speak to me. But I just, I just love that. I love that a day that wasn't shog, if I can use that word. No way, shape, or form did God say, celebrate this day. Be happy this day. Have a party this day. He said, you don't afflict yourselves. Either I'm killing you, if you think that's what he means, or I'm removing you from the nation. It doesn't matter. He was harsh. You better humble yourself and, and meditate on me. But in the root of it all, how does it end? The goat gets taken off and we're forgiven. That has to bring you joy as you strive, I pray, as you strive to grow in sanctification. All right, last one. Here we go. This is the passage we've read a few times now. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel, 
the appointed feasts of the Lord. So I don't know if you caught it, but the last feast is called the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm going to go with Tabernacles, even though Booths showed up here, and obviously they are interchangeable. Um, but this is unique for multiple reasons. First one I already shared. It's the last one. This is it. Okay, they're at the end of the summer harvest. The next time they're going to gather together and celebrate is the next Passover when the spring starts over again. So there is a sense of finality here. One last celebration. Is that why God commands celebration here? Maybe. I, I have a, another opinion on that. But this is the one. Again, I guess I like repeating myself. I believe they are all, I believe that you're celebrating these things wrong. You're observing these feasts wrong if you don't celebrate. All of them. If it's not with a joyous heart. But this one you're commanded to four times in three verses. You will celebrate. You will rejoice. You will celebrate. You will celebrate. The Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned all over the Bible. If I was going to do one sermon on the Feast of Tabernacles, we can go all the different places of what happened. Some people believe Jesus was born at the, uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? But what jumps out to me the most is this is the one where they had to actually build their, themselves tiny homes, if I can use today's... Uh, vernacular, they had to build booths to stay in. Now, that's unlike any other, um, any other feast, and we see why. Well, we'll talk about why in a second. Well, I guess we'll talk about it now. God says, so that you can remember that you dwelt in booths when you were traveling through the wilderness, that I made you dwell in booths when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, as I study this, a lot of people say, Yes, well, the reason God did this is because at the end of the summer harvest, Israel was about as prosperous as you're ever going to be. It's almost like a squirrel saving up for the winter. They had their spring harvest. They had their summer harvest. They pretty much had everything to get them through the next five months. So what better time to spend seven days in a booth to remember what it was like so that you can so much more be thankful and grateful for what God gave you? Does that make sense? Good, good answer, sir. Thank you. That makes sense, I guess. I don't mean to be contrarian, but I'd be false with you if I just came up here and told you what I read. I don't know if God really wanted them to see those booths as a negative thing. Oh, remember how bad this was? Pfft, hope we never have to do this again. That was God's provision for them. Like, God allowed them to survive by dwelling in booths. I, I don't know. It's up to you. But I... Maybe someone can correct me here, because I, I know I read it, and I couldn't find it. So if I dreamed it, I'm sorry. But I know I read somewhere that when they were in the wilderness, the booths would be set up almost in like a horseshoe around the courtyard so that they were always facing the temple. Whether that's true or not, I think that is a beautiful picture. Followed with the fact, and why I like tabernacles better than booths. Sue, you ready for a trick question? I'll give you three tries. Is tabernacles a noun or a verb? Keep going. Thank you. It's both. A tabernacle is a place, but it's also a verb to tabernacle. When John 1.14 says that Jesus came and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is tabernacle. He tabernacled in a tent with us. Not in a, you know, that's what it means. So as I think that this is a feast of tabernacles, a feast of dwelling with God that comes at the end 
I'm sorry, I'm gonna associate tabernacling with fellowshipping. That's how it spoke to my heart. On so many levels, I feel like tabernacle associates with fellowship. I mean, first of all, because it comes after atonement. Agreed? We can't fellowship with God until we first have that day of atonement. Agreed? We agree with that, yes? So, I mean, it makes total sense that after the day of atonement comes fellowship. It makes total sense that fellowship even comes at the end. Because now think about it. I think it's going to come up there, right, sir? Put the list up there. Can you fellowship with God? No, I'm not asking you you're saved. Please do not think that those two are interchangeable. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're fellowshipping with God. 1 John 1 makes that clear, that we should strive to fellowship. Yes, koinonia, partnership. There's so many positive words that go with fellowship, that go beyond, well, I'm saved. I don't mean to discount that, but I don't know how you could say you have fellowship with God if you don't rest in his provision, rest in his perfection, rest in everything he is. I don't know how you could fellowship with God if you're not consciously thinking about what he did for you. If you're taking your salvation for granted, but you're fellowshipping with him. If you're not trying to grow in your faith and thanking him for the faith that you gave him. If you're not being humble. Last I checked, God resists the proud. There's no way you're fellowshipping with him if you're not humble. If you're not being a good steward, do you really think God's saying, oh, that's all right, be selfish, we can still hang out. Come on, we're tight, let's go. Are you kidding? And then all of a sudden, hey guys, here we go, Day of Atonement's coming. But is that a bad thing? Or are we just focused on the fact that we want to grow in our sanctification so that we can fellowship with him? That's just me. Again, that's my right-hand column. I hope God speaks to your heart, whatever, or you allow him to speak to your heart whatever he wants. I just feel like that flows so beautifully that if you're, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but that eight needs to come at the end. And then some people who have more of a prophesying end times view would say, yep, those first four, that's pretty much here on earth. That, you know, uh, God Sabbath and we got saved and through our faith and our humility, first stewardship, but they believe the chapter, the, the seventh month, what we studied tonight, that's the end times, that the horn's going to blow, and we're all going to have that day of atonement to see who's forgiven and who isn't, and then we will spend eternity in heaven in fellowship with him. I think it's beautiful. I, I, I don't know how it's after 7 o'clock. It's insane how fast this goes. But my last question, and it really is unique to all the other ones, do you find merriment in fellowship? The reason I say it's a unique question is because the answer has to be yes. By definition of what fellowship is. The question isn't, are you enjoying your fellowship? The question is, are you in fellowship with him? Which isn't perfection. We talked about that Thursday night because pastor talking about how Paul said, um, oh, come on, imitate God. It wasn't imitate, though. I'm thinking of Lenny this morning. Let's say it. Yeah, with mimic. Thank you. Mimic God, but then also he tells people, mimic me, right? Paul doesn't say that. I don't say that because I think I'm perfect. I struggle with so much. So when I say, hey, imitate me, what I mean is, hey, come struggle with me. Come on. Let, let's try to grow together. Let's try to do this together. But all of those things, if you want to enjoy the fellowship, we don't have to be perfect at one through seven, but one through seven have to matter to us. So I'm done. You can't argue with the right hand, left hand column. Just read the chapter. It's all there. But why is it there? 
so that I can know what Jewish people did four millennia ago? Like, why? Is that there for me or not? And if it's there for me, then what am I supposed to have merriment in that I tend to forget? So God says, hey, remember this. Don't forget your salvation. Don't forget your faith. Don't forget to be humble. I'm going like this. That's not God slapping. That's me being Italian. Okay? God doesn't... God's like... He does it for my benefit because he wants me to fellowship with him. He wants me... He wanted the Jews to. What kind of God says, make sure you take days out where you remember what I did for you so that you can feel better about your relationship with me? Only our God. No other God cares, to my knowledge. Our God cares. Our God wants fellowship with us. Our God set up feasts that the people had to observe, but not just observe, enjoy, celebrate, as they focused on him and grew in him. And I believe that if we do those things, fellowship falls into place, and then we are honorable Utensils, I don't know what word to put here, but good for the master's use. So that's it. I really thought I'd be done early, but it shows you what I know. Let's pray, and I thank you all. Lord, I thank you. Uh, I, uh, maybe I could have spent a week on each feast, Lord. I, I don't know. I gave it the time that I believe you gave it. Lord, you, you set up a calendar, and then we'll get to Numbers, and we'll get to Deuteronomy, and I know these things will pop up again. And when they do, I thank you that I will better know what you mean by the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths and the Day of Atonement, Lord. I don't want these to just be words, but at some point I, I got to know what the words mean. So I pray that we at least know what the words mean, that we have at least grown in the left-hand column, but Lord, that each one of us let you speak to our heart the right-hand column. What are we to get from this? What joy are we missing out on? What praise are we not giving you? Because we're not focused on rest and salvation and faith and humility and stewardship and focus and sanctification and fellowship. Lord, you are worthy of all of it. You don't owe us anything, and yet you want to give us so much. And we deprive ourselves because we follow our calendar instead of yours. So I thank you, Lord. I knew you'd get me through this. I knew you'd speak to my heart. I know you'll speak to, uh, I'm drawing a blank, Lord, but you know who speaks next. And we're just going to keep chugging along till you take us home or till your son comes. And I know that we'll keep growing if we allow your spirit to speak to our heart in a way that only you can. So I thank you as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, please stand. Uh, grab your hymnals. I believe it's page 340. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and we're going to sing that chorus twice because it's just a chorus. It's 340, I believe it is, right? All right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.